Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Farouk Abbasi joins us today from New York. Farouk is founder and GP at Preface Ventures. Preface Ventures invests 250 to 750K at day zero in teams that build the frontier enterprise to improve work. He is also co-founder of Diversity VC, a nonprofit group that seeks to increase diversity of thought in the venture industry. Prior to Preface, Farouk has been a career VC, most recently with Mosaic Ventures and Costanoa Ventures. Farouk, welcome to the show. Nick, thanks so much for, for having me. Um, I've been a fan of the show for, for a while, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Awesome, man. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, can you talk us through your background and, and path to VC? Yeah, happily. Um, so I've been venture capital investing uh, as an institutional VC for the last 12 years. And over the last four years as a solo practitioner, um, pretty much have always been a seed investor. So I uh, can't, can't, can't get rid of it. Um, probably you know, 50 million across 45 companies have sort of always, always been here. It's the only job I've ever had. I uh, grew up in Chicago, um, youngest of four Indian immigrant family. Um, definitely not Ivy League educated. Definitely not like upper class. Dead, you know, it wasn't an accident that I got into venture. Uh, it was through a lot of hard work and a lot of repetition and learning from people and uh, a lot of my mentors and, and former bosses who gave me a shot, um, which, is, which is fantastic. Um, and what I invest in is enterprise infrastructure and cybersecurity and the frontier enterprise, which we can define later. But I, I want to back the non-obvious founders that, that don't always look the part, but uh, have the capability to build something quite, quite meaningful. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, look how I, how I truly first, first got started. Um, you know, I just want to say thank you to Mood Ragani. I met him when I was 19 years old. I'm pretty sure I had a faux hawk. I had emo clothing. <laughs> I, uh, I just, I was, uh, yeah, I was you know, coming from an Indian immigrant family. I mean, the plan, I have 45 first cousins who are doctors. The plan was to become a physician as well. Um, but that was averted, um, happened to intern at general catalyst when I was, uh, 19 years old. And, um, ever since I just knew that I wanted to do this and it's, uh, you know, it, it, it combines, it combines some of the best parts of, of, around continuous learning, um, using non, often nonprofit capital um, to uh, to fund entrepreneurship that which creates jobs and it's a super fulfilling and so I'm uh, I'm going to do this for another thirty years. So was the thought always to you know launch your own firm and be entrepreneurial or did that you know did that uh, did you have you know a, a transition at some point in time working for these other venture firms where you said you know I need to go off on my own. Uh, so I'm a big family person and family matters a lot to me. Um, my older sister asked me to move to London, um, to help her raise her kids. 
Uh, and so I actually uh, worked at a venture capital firm in London called Mosaic Ventures. Um, and while I was there, uh, I wound up investing personally in a small side vehicle and some angel investments with sort of friends and family. And I just loved and enjoyed that the most and being truly authentic with founders. They, knew, they know who, who I am. They know how to get in touch with me. There's no bureaucracy. Um, and it just felt the most authentic. Uh, and so I learned, right? And I think um, this is a craft of apprenticeship uh, for starters. And so I learned from really good people um, and investing in good, great companies like Auto One and Remitly, which hopefully should go public pretty soon. Um, but at some point, uh, I just, I realized how much I enjoyed just being, being an individual decision maker. And, you know, and, and I'd love to sort of get into that a bit later about, you know, the fund structure and it's not just me, it's other people. It's a, it's a, it's a network. Uh, but I kind of stopped fighting. I stopped fighting the, the urge. And so to, you know, launching preface and being a sole, sole GP and starting my own firm, it's a function of a couple different things. I mean, for sure, the, probably the biggest thing is the strategy that I wanted to execute on and what I think founders truly need in enterprise infrastructure. It's just hard to find. Um, and, the, and the way to sort of be my full self and, and support founders in the early kind of day zero journey is to do it um, kind of lean and mean. Good, good. So, you know, we covered this in the intro. You you cut 250K to 750K checks at, at day zero. Um, tell us more about the thesis at Preface. Yeah. So what I do, if I had to, you know, quickly summarize it, I basically find product engineering leaders who have self-selected in building proprietary tooling inside of their organization. So say they work at Oracle or Netflix or IBM, they solve a problem in cybersecurity uh, or software development automation or revenue analytics. And they do it, they, they basically get a directive from their executive and says, hey, solve this problem. The engineer frantically looks around, he or she, and says, all right, all right, I'll, I'll look into this. Um, these types of folks look into open source solutions, existing vendors. And at some point, they're just like, you know what? I can do this myself. And these types of people are my people. Um, they corral the resources, the integrations. They owned a PNL. They became individual contributors that became managers. And, uh, and I can give you kind of a, a best example of that story with, with Redlock, which we can get to. Um, but these types of founders and these types of teams, they are so unloved in the Silicon Valley. I mean, you don't know how many times I've, I've heard of the story, mostly from founders, where you have like a technically creative person um, who built something internally, right? So maybe that's uh, Eric Wan at Zoom or Olivier at Datadog or, you know, uh, Jyoti Bansal now at, you know, from AppD and now at Unusual Ventures, sure. all these people or Slack, right? I mean, all these, all these sort of projects are built internally and they go and they try to pitch and get funding and they're perceived as too technical. Um, they're often immigrants and they don't have access to the same sort of funding networks but they're so critical to their companies. And if they weren't at their companies, they would like the lights would shut off. It's for these people that I exist. Um, and, I, and, and what's wonderful about these types of teams is they have a competitive advantage. I mean, they'll hire their old engineers. They'll have kind of customer connectivity. And what I do is as kind of founding investors, I'm, um, you know, as they're spinning out or as they have spun out and kind of like the first or the second round, but usually the first round, um, I support them in the way that they need to be supported. Um, and uh, yeah, that's so enterprise infrastructure is, is, is the focus. And for a lot of reasons, it aligns with me and kind of my own personal background and biases. But uh, um, it's the stuff that everyone needs and everyone will need. Everyone will need the identity management stuff that Oracle has built. Everyone will need the software development and developer productivity tooling that Netflix has built internally. And then eventually that becomes SaaSified, API-ified. And uh, I, want to, I want to help kind of 
make that process more frictionless. Very good. Very good. Yeah. You've talked about these terms, uh, frontier enterprise and enterprise infrastructure, you know, how do you define that? Yeah. Um, so if you're, if you're a large enterprise, uh, today, or if you ever, if you're a startup, you purchase a ton of software, you purchase software as a service, stuff for payroll, but there's stuff below the stack, so to speak. So if you, if you had to set them slice enterprise infrastructure, I'd say there's like a data compute layer, there's a storage layer, and there's a network and security, security layer. <clears throat> this stuff, as it touches sort of cloud spend, um, today, like in a P&L, you're, if you're purchasing software, it typically lives in OpEx. But uh, AWS, for example, on hosting, lives in cost of, cost of goods sold. Like Frontier Enterprise is the stuff that literally was so critical that they had to corral and siphon off engineers to build the thing in order for them to functionally operate. That is, that, that is the stuff that I tend to invest in. So what are some examples? Um, multi, like identity management, right? Um, are you, you know, using Okta or using you know, LDAP or ODAP or JumpCloud? Or um, how do you access a hybrid application or a on-premise application or a cloud application? All of these companies have VPs of identity, but then again, what happens every single time is that someone emerges as like the leader and it becomes API-ified. Um, and so that's just one, one quick example. Uh, but you know, being, being kind of situated in the right networks, I can, and interviewing engineering leaders, I have, I have an interview with an engineering leader like once a week uh, just to learn from them. And it's, it's great for my own intellectual diversity, but every once in a while you learn about a theme or you find someone that you just have to partner with. Uh, and that's, that's what I do. Are, are the businesses that you fund, are they created and ideated by the founders or is it a collaboration between you and the founders? Or do you even take, you know, concepts and bring them to potential founders that are these, you know, product builders and engineering folks within organizations? Yep. Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, oftentimes these type of teams, they're still, they're, spinning out of their organization. They know who they're going to work with. They definitely don't have a deck. And what they do have is, is a defined point of view of a technical problem because they solved it before internally. <clears throat> and there, there isn't a deck. And when we, when we meet for the first time, it's often like a whiteboarding or a napkin experience where or network, you know, napkin writing experience where they kind of share what they're about to do and, and not having a deck. I mean, it's, I actually think in some ways it's sort of a good thing. And what, where my input tends to come in is around product marketing, right? So if they have a new technical solution to solve a, you know, continuous deployment uh, software solution or, or, or problem, um, how does that solution fit in with legacy infrastructure or new competitors? Um, how can, how can like we stack the deck in the, in the favor of the founders to make sure that they have a capital efficient outcome and they don't need to raise too much money for, for sort of, you know, goals of success. Um, that's, that's typically how, how the situation happens. I mean, often, you know, I think 70% of the time have been the first check in these businesses. Um, to answer your question, there are times though, where I have, there's a talented founder who's like looking for something, um, and they, they have the customer empathy and the domain expertise and operational expertise and vision. But I, I, uh, I'll sometimes kind of, you know, uh, inception them <laughs> or, 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 or maybe, you know, we'll, we'll just talk about it and we'll have a lively conversation or I'll introduce them to people that I think are working on an interesting set of problems that are, that are tangential. So, you know, for example, like putting it out there to the world, um, I would love to fund a company that does like an integration platform, like a MuleSoft or trade.io for cybersecurity data and data products like that should exist. Um, or, uh, 
or a way to sort of infer third-party cyber risk um, without like a survey. Um, like these things are important and critical. And uh, you just, you, you give someone an idea and they might take it in a totally different direction and let them write their story, right? I mean, like literally preface, I say that we're the capital before your story. Um, they, uh, they build, they build and uh, I just share a bit, listen more, and hopefully something good happens. Yeah, talk talk to us about sourcing, right? Are you finding these individuals and kind of watching them and connecting with them, <laughs> you know, in some cases years before they actually are ready or, you know, how or are they finding you, you know, how do you get together with these folks and uh um, you know, find new potential investments? Yeah, got a good question. So, uh I've I like for sourcing, I leverage a hundred percent distributed model. Um, so uh, it's funny you use the term watch them. Um, <laughs> uh, I have I've built an algorithm that uh, finds uh, potential founders sort of for me, um, but not necessarily like I'm going to invest in them because the algorithm says this is an interesting person. It's just um, a highly qualified conversation um, from like a VP of engineering or a VP of product. and so, once a week or twice a week, I'll, I'll reach out to an engineering leader. I'll understand like what they've built at their at their you know former organizations, and we just sort of talk, talk, and have a conversation. Um, oftentimes, I have gotten to know them for for many months or years. Um, you know, it's, and it's kind of like love, right? You have to like meet someone at the at the right time, but sometimes you kind of get to know the girl or the guy um, for for a while, right? <laughs> before before someone makes the move or a relationship happens. Um, and, and as a fun aside. Um, you know, first round capital, who I have a lot of respect for, they, uh, they, you know, there's a couple of really good predictors and data driven predictors to their venture capital successes, which I think this is public. Um, it's the, you know, there's repeat founders have had shown better success, which is true, but uh, a really good predictor of their VC investment outcomes has been the number of days they got to know a founder, right? So like they knew Travis Kalanick for years and his company. And so I, um, I like to invest in the line and not the dots. And using these types of folks, uh, and you know them, them getting interested in startup companies that I send them, and helping them, and, help, and them helping with diligence, and I help them with whatever they they wanna they wanna do. I mean, the good thing about the Silicon Valley culture is, you know, don't come in with a hard expectation. Um, try to be helpful. Try to be helpful, and uh, just see see where it can go. So you, you know, you run this algorithm. You've identified all these potential candidates for businesses. Are you? Are you then reaching out like at any time and 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 building those relationships? Or are you waiting to see some sort of trigger or some moment? Yeah, um, I would say uh, honestly, like I'm like oftentimes I just I, I I'm not like waiting for a trigger or a moment to to have a conversation, right? Like, uh, and in fact, to some degree, and we talked about sort of diversity and diversity VC. I want to actually have, I, I care about having an outbound sourcing model because there are people that I don't often know and I want to build connectivity to people that I don't know. Um, and so I'll have a conversation with someone and I'll and kind of in my own head sort of think, okay, like that person is very happy at their organization. Maybe they're having kids soon. Um, maybe they're about to get promoted, whatever. Like, uh, let me just, you know, keep in touch and just just be, be accessible to that person, he or she, whenever they're ready. Um, but uh, you know, the, I, there are there are interestingly some some data driven signals for when people are about to start companies, like if they start blogging on Medium.com about racial inequality or climate change or the future of identity management. 
Um, that's a signal. They start angel investing. If maybe their company was acquired and they've been, you know, cooking uh, at the business for you know two years or three years, and so they've went through their earnout. Um, time does matter, but my hope is to get to know people early and not to be so directive about the relationship. You know, because your your model is different and the founder profile is a bit different than most. Um, in what ways, in what unique ways, you know, are you providing value post investment and you had mentioned this kind of at the top that um, you kind of help fill some of those gaps. You know, in many cases, these are highly technical founders. Maybe they don't have the the same sales skills. Um, you know, how how are you contributing and how are you helping amplify that portfolio? Sure. Um, so for the first hundred days, I'm very uh, I'm, I'm I'm always there. I'm always accessible. I want to earn the right to be the first call, not just in times of goodness, but also in times of challenge. You know, if the kids are sick, if someone's getting a divorce, like I really care about these people because they're human beings. Um, so like a, a personal, like being, being a first investor kind of gives you the, the right for that, uh, for that sort of close intimate relationship. And that's what I really enjoy about it. Um, with these types of teams, right. When they, when they leave their organizations and they have the competitive advantage and like in hiring and customer connectivity, um, there, there are some things that are, I wouldn't say are, um, are by necessity like trends, but insular thinking, for example. So say, say Nick, you were an engineer at Google. Um, you could say, hey, we do stuff the Google way. We can't do it this way. Um, so in the first 12 months of, of investing in the company, I promise four qualified customer introductions. Um, that's, that's key. Um, second piece is on recruiting. Uh, usually when I find a team, you know, maybe they need like a developer evangelist or maybe they need you know, and a, you know, a product marketing manager, a product manager, um, I'll often introduce the founder to at least two people who have done it before, have had success. And look, maybe they join, maybe they join as advisors, but I want to sort of facilitate and accelerate the learnings of my founder to be capital efficient um, and hopefully create those connections through osmosis. Uh, definitely getting the companies funded. <laughs> like that, that's key because you know, younger in my career, I used to think, Man, like, uh, like you know, getting cat, like, who, who cares about fundraising? Like, you know, it's all about the, it's all about the goods. It's all about like, can you deliver? Having a founder operate in a in a safe space and have like capital to sort of do experiments intelligently and make sure that they can raise more capital to continue their experimentation and find product market fit is is critical. And so, uh, I'll introduce my founders and follow on financings and in current financings to the four, four, um, at least four uh, of the best uh, leads that I can kind of put together and back channel to make sure that happens uh, and, and happens well. Uh, and th- so I'm pretty explicit about this. And in fact, on my website, I have a, a section called the code. Um, there's so much, la- there's such a lack of transparency and there's even humor about this. Like there's these, remember those Twitter profiles? Like, let me know how I could be helpful, <laughs> right? Like, like it's actually, it's pretty, it, it's, it's, it, it's kind of strikes me that it's a, that it's humorous. And so, um, you know, I, I would just sort of say, yeah, I just gave you a bunch of examples, but in short, actually saying in advance of what you're going to do and executing on it is uh, going above the bar. Right. You're, you know, you're working with, uh, these companies that it, it sounds like you're working with them in a significant way, right? The first hundred days, um, that sounds very hands-on, you know, how do you make sure that you have enough, enough time allocation to the other responsibilities of running a fund, you know, including, uh, sourcing new deals and, uh, IR and, and everything else. Yeah. 
I like, I like time management is the secret, I think, of a successful venture capitalist saying yes, saying no to things. Um, what I have done, which I think suits me, and I'm trying not, not to be you know, proselytizing here, but having a deployment pace of three years and then also only doing four to six investments a year enables me to have time, enables me to have time to sort of work hard for those first 100 days. There is no like small check for preface. There's no optionality check. Um, and I just, I think of it as, a, as an investment and as an investment of, of my own time and making sure that I'm accessible to the founder in the first hundred days, um, helping them create the board deck. Um, that's important. It's like a high, high leverage, um, actually in that, in this case, kind of a low time ask, but we're, you know, helping, helping the founding team focus on fewer things and knocking it out of the park and measuring the right stuff. Um, and look, at some point, you know, Founders won't need that kind of high intensity of, of, of uh, interaction. And I would say, um, in general, when I think about my life and when I think about when people have had the most and biggest impact on me, it's not necessarily like did someone spend hours and hours and hours with me giving advice. It was that like 30-minute conversation that totally changed my life. Um, I tried to have an impact like that um, every, every time I can. That's great. That's great. You know, you're, you're a solo capitalist. Uh, much like myself and uh, a challenge that, that I've had that I've thought a lot about is, you know, how do you audit your own decisions? Um, how do you, how do you keep score? How do you have some checks and balances? You know, how does one evaluate themselves and, and make sure that you're making sound decisions and uh, kind of looking back at, at, um, at the track record? Um, you know, how do you think about that and how do you um, sort of evaluate yourself? Yeah. That's a great question. So the one wonderful thing about the long term is it's DPI, right? So like performance, performance over enough time, like you'll tend to see that people trend towards a certain set of outcomes. And it takes so that's forever like what, though, right? <laughs> it does. It does take forever. I think in enterprise infrastructure, it happens sooner than in other segments, but um, no, it's a really good question. So yeah, for sure. I'm an, I'm an individual decision maker, but it takes a village. Um, you know, I like, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think we, me and you, we have a monopoly on wisdom. Um, but the right answer often lives outside of the partnership. And so there are people that you cultivate good relationships with that you can kind of bring in. Um, and so uh, what I have as part of my, as part of my fund is I have a group of uh, kind of active LPs and we do quarterly calls together and they're very talented investors and operators. And they give me feedback um, on, on, you know, they give me, you know, sourcing is very useful, but also like diligence help. So if it's a, if it's a company like a bottoms up SaaS business, I'll call the investor who's the early check in Slack and UiPath. Or if it's fintech infrastructure, I'll call the early check in Robinhood who is, you know, has an engineering background and supported that company early on. Um, I, I think writing, writing helps a lot. Uh, so writing a memo, I always do a memo. Um, customer introductions during diligence is, is, is important, but if I'm looking a little bit more long-term um, and I, 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 I found this useful and if it's useful for anyone listening, um, I would suggest the same. Once a year, I write down every investment I've ever done. And I, I have like, it's a, it's a sort of a secret Google drive spreadsheet that I have. And I write where I knew I could be right, where I knew it could be wrong, where I didn't know I was going to be right, where I didn't know I was going to be wrong. Um, and I really focus on the last two sections uh, and like, what were the sort of the unknown things or things I could have uncovered more and more. Uh, and that helps a ton. Um, so I'm just, I'm grateful though, that there's, yes, I'm a sole, solo capitalist and sole GP, but 
there's a, there's a structural kind of aspect to my fund with my unpartners who are um, just wonderful. And I'm so grateful and appreciative for their, for their support. Um, but uh, like creating these sort of systems and structures to reflect periodically uh, is, is super useful. And I think the LPAC um, also, also is useful too. Yeah. Speaking of the LPAC, um, it sounds like you put one together, a limited partner advisory committee. Uh, do they help with decision-making or, um, you know, what, what, in what capacity do they assist you, um, you know, in leading this fund? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's in process. Uh, it'll be three folks. Um, one who's actually backed me for the, for the third time. And the first time as a sole practitioner, uh, we meet, uh, we meet annually. Um, and I would say that, yeah, for sure, strategic topics around reserve management, deployment pace, um, and kind of checks. Yeah, it's, it's a good, healthy sort of set of checks and balances um, around the big strategic questions. Uh, and yeah, certainly, certainly useful. And, and the next one's in November. <laughs> good, good. Um, Farouk, are you actively investing in open source startups? Uh, so one of my hot takes <laughs> is, uh, so I'd say actively, yes, uh, both with an incredibly high bar. Um, so that? there's a, so, well, so there, there's a ton of excitement around open source and for good reason, yeah. it lowers the friction to adopt technology, which I'm supportive of. And it really is a core choice for a lot of database infrastructure. But, um, as a startup investor at seed, uh, there's data to show that open source is a proven distribution model but not so much to show that's a proven revenue model. Um, when you think about like volume of exits, when you think about capital efficiency, it actually takes 220 million bucks to create $100 million in open source revenue. Um, and these companies are staying, are staying private longer. And so developer trends, what's interesting is everyone's, everyone thinks you know, Docker is amazing. And then everyone thinks um, you know, X company is amazing or this project or that project. Um, Really, like when you think about it, it's not just downloads, it's not just forks and like these sort of metrics at the early stage, like you're still, you're still underwriting um, monetization risk as an investor and usage and budget. And there's so many missing pieces to it. And so look, like um, around database infrastructure, MongoDB, Elastic, Databricks, Confluent, like these are all excellent companies. But uh, um, I think the better risk reward for investing in, in open source uh, tends to be post-revenue. And that's usually around sort of series B and plus. And I think Mike Volpe at Index has done a really good job. And same with Matt Miller at Sequoia and others. Um, but the, the question I would ask every founder who isn't who has open source software, and I'm an investor in Armory.io, which is doing, doing fantastic. And that's a commercialized Spinnaker open source project. What I would ask all these founders is like, why does being open source help you? And if, if they just say, oh, some loose answers around community and this sort of like religious philosophical approach, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, an insufficient answer for me. Um, like try to, this is like your startup is like your home, <laughs> like try to try to make your home and design it in a way that is like useful for you and then useful for your customers. Right. And so, um, yeah, I'm, um, I, uh, I'm open, I'm certainly open to it, but I tend to have a bias towards proprietary software. And in fact, you know, when, when these founders, uh, leave or future founders, I should say, um, leave their, their mothership, like they have assessed open source and they realize that a proprietary solution is the right way. No, I like it. It's, it's certainly a hot take. I, uh, when we have, uh, Salil Deshpond on, on the program, I'll, I'll definitely ask for his take on that. Cause I know he's got <laughs> an active yeah. approach to investing in open source. Um, yeah. No, and, and, and by the way, and him and I are co-investors in Armory. Oh, really? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So like I, I'm, I'm, you know, for sure open to it, and, and it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a great company. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already sixteen thousand VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Farouk, what about, um, how, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of bifurcation in the VC industry with, you know, capital underwriting R&D risk versus uh, sales and marketing risk? Yeah, so the, I, I, like there's, a, there's all this nomenclature now around like seed, post-seed, mango seed. I don't know. Then maybe there'll be another, maybe there'll be avocado seed one day. <laughs> I, uh, like it sounds like California, like, they'll probably do it at some point. Um <laughs> I, uh, I, I just like, when I think about like, uh, you know, venture capital and like your, your, your funding innovation, um, like what risk are you underwriting? Are you underwriting R and D risk? Or are you underwriting sales and marketing risk? We've seen a lot of the larger, like kind of, uh, and I think it was, uh, Nikhil who, who, uh, articulated this as like uh, aggregator funds or, or, um, is that, is that right? Uh, aggregator versus specialist. I'm forgetting. Uh, agglomerator. Agglomerator. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. So these big mega funds who manage multi-billion dollars and the, and the ones that actually on their website say like, you know, we back founders at the early stages. That's a, that's a generalism. What a lot of these uh, firms are looking for is some evidence of sales and marketing risk. And they're benefiting from the fact that in enterprise software and infrastructure, everyone's a customer. Uh, and these markets are really, really large. Yeah. For underwriting R&D risk, and this is what I see, like, and I have deep empathy for these types of founders when they leave you know, like Oracle or Cisco, and they come to you and they have kind of like a loose idea. And maybe they even have, um, a, I mean, it's a formed idea and they have some pilot revenue and it looks, it's lumpy. Um, those, those, those voices, it like, and those stories, it falls on deaf ears. Um, and so like my, the gap that I'm, that preface is filling in the market and like what I want to be there for is for these, the, you know, 40 to 45 year old immigrant engineers who leave these organizations and they are, they are they are creating something, and I am underwriting the R and D risk uh, of it. Um, and you know, at, at seed and where valuations are, but also just what I enjoy and being part of like the founding story of these of these companies uh, is just where I like to. It's where I personally like to be. So, um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I look for, I look forward to partnering with the sales and marketing risk underwriters at sort of Series B and C <laughs> yes. and D, uh, and I love them all. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Because they 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 it's it's fuel on the fire, but you gotta build the engine first. Yeah, it's it's a good partnership. I mean, I I would have to imagine that if you're selecting the right talent, you know, and partnering with the right folks, and the 
the R and D risk is a great place for you to sit and kind of help with, um, from a capital standpoint. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Farouk, what are your thoughts on, um, biases in founder selection and, you know, data driven predictors of founder success? Yeah. Um, so if, uh, if you think about, um, if you just do an analysis, like take away all the passion, take away like the crazy, crazy outlier successes like Zuckerberg and Bezos, more often than not, um, successful entrepreneurs, particularly in enterprise, 43 years old, 43 is not a Stanford dropout who has flip flops or whatever. Um, they've typically worked at like a tier one tech company, like an Oracle or an IBM or a Cisco, or maybe a Yahoo. Um, they're immigrants. They got a chip on their shoulder. And again, like they've, they've, they've been a part of a founding story of a, of a startup and they want to be CEO this time. Um, and if, and, and if that kind of, if that founding story last time was like a 50 million to 150 million and they made a little bit of money and they're, and they're actually self-funding and they're putting more uh, skin in the game, um, they're actually two times more likely to have a billion dollar outcome next time. Um, if they're angel investing, uh, if they're angel investing, it's actually, there's, there's, there's been data to show that there's a higher correlation with venture capital successes. And if you think about like the intuitive reasons why, it's because they've worn the investor hat and they get to learn, um, you know, other, you know, how other founders communicate, ask questions to investors. And so um, I, I think about these inputs and how I've actually codified them in, in, in my algorithm um, called Klarman um, as, as an ode to sort of uh, Seth Klarman, the, the famed value investor. Um, it's, it's self-selecting like a pre-qualified group of really impressive people who often are just unloved. That's great. That's great. Uh, Farouk, you've been passionate about diversity. You co-founded Diversity VC, uh, I believe with Chuck Warner and... Um, you know, I'd be curious to see or to hear more about how you're practicing, you know, a more inclusive style of venture capital. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's often not asked, asked about. Um, yeah, uh, look, like I'm, I think I mentioned earlier, like I'm not one of these people. <laughs> I'm like, I, I didn't, you know, I'm a venture, venture capitalists and the ones that are at kind of, you know, tier one Silicon Valley funds, they're kind of all the same and that some of them are even related to one another. And it's, um, it's, a it's, it's kind of a, kind of a small world. And that's a reflection of the founders that, you know, they all back. Um, and I almost have some empathy towards it because, you know, biases come out in human decisioning when you have imperfect information and my God, venture is imperfect information. Right? <laughs> so like, like, like we are, we are, we are like, you know, do we back the people because they remind us of a childhood friend or do they look like me or do they remind me of someone or whatever? Um, so I'm, I'm actively trying to remove bias from my own decisioning. Um, so for one, like with my, with the algorithmic sourcing tool called Klarman, which I talked about earlier, it's totally gender neutral. Um, and it's education neutral. It's uh, more merit focused. And so it does not matter if you went to, you know, you know, San Jose state or Harvard or whatever, um, you, if you, you know, had a good title and you were promoted, like that's, that's good. And it's pre-qualified for me. Um, second piece, I mean, like when you think about stakeholders, right. So founders matter, um, but also LPs matter. So 50% of my LPs are female, uh, and or people of color, which is good. And I'm, I'm trying to make more of an effort to, to be inclusive because even that community, which is actually better and more gender diverse, at least, um, than, uh, than the venture capital GP community, um, you know, like venture is a really wonderful asset class. And I know you've done, 
you know, you've done wonderful work with your founders and I'll, you know, hopefully continue to do wonderful work with my founders too. Um, that, that alpha and that like, um, economic empowerment should be, uh, should be pervasive, uh, to other groups and not just Caucasian males. Um, when I think about the founders that I invest in, uh, so when I create the board decks with them, uh, I actually ask them in the org chart to show uh, gender and an ethnic split by, by function, um, which is important as well as turnover for when people leave, uh, which is key. And I, I, you know, what you, what you measure is something that you can change. I illuminate these topics a little bit earlier for these types of, uh, founders. And then, uh, I aggregate that and actually share that with my, with my LPs. Um, and so, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much more to do. Um, there's, there's a thousand more things to do, but uh, that's what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And for sure, I, I keep my, you know, inbox and calendar sometimes open as much as I can. You know, when, when someone of a, uh, you know, someone wants to get into this industry and they email me for a 15 minute chat, I usually take it. <laughs> I usually, t- I usually, t- I usually take the call. I'm like, all right, like call me in five minutes or whatever. And I give them my phone number and just to see, because someone, someone saw that in me. Um, and if, if, if more people of different backgrounds get into this industry, um, socioeconomically, gender, experiential, diverse people, they're more likely to fund fund folks that are reflective of like the overall universe. Because um, an, an, an opportunity is unfortunately in the financing world, it's, it's not meritocratic. Uh, it's a lot about who you know. I hate warm, intro- warm introductions is a funny concept to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Farouk, I'm, I'm gonna give you a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical investment oh, situation. All right. <laughs> okay. And All right. you can only ask me uh, three questions for three specific data points in order to make your decision. Um, so, so let's say your approach to invest in a frontier enterprise startup. The founder is credible with great domain expertise in the space. Uh, prototype has been built that demonstrates the value, but maybe it's not commercial ready. It's a breadboard. Um, and let's say the market seems large and interesting as a space um, that will experience strong growth. Uh, here again, the catch is that you can only ask three questions for three specific data points. Um, what three questions do you ask? One, can I have more time? <laughs> uh, uh, sorry. That's good. That's <laughs> Too good. easy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but if, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a super good question. Um, I would say first one would be um, what, what technical or product opinion that, um, do you have that's contentious in your industry? Like what, like, what do you, and I, and I asked this question because I want to uh, understand, you know, if that's the foundation of someone starting a company, but like, why do they disagree? Like, what does conflict look like for them? So that's the first question. Um, second question would be, you know, which person or which customer outside of your own company um, believes, in you, believes in you the most and why is it now for them? Um, and it's, it's useful. It's useful. And it's interesting to kind of triangulate, um, you know, for a customer diligence, but like why, why now? And why do they believe, um, and, and, and another person's word. And then the third thing, um, third question would be what would make you stop working on this? And the, the reason I asked that question is I want to better assess grit. And most people don't expect that question. And, uh, they get a little uncomfortable when they ask it. And I kind of read their little body signals, <laughs> body signals and facial signals and, yeah. Um, and, but, but basically like, uh, like, like what getting behind someone's motivations for why they're sort of starting a company is good. Like, why are you starting this? Like, Oh, I saw this massive opportunity and you know, why what would make you stop doing it? Like, you know, will they, will they mention an answer about family? Will they mention an answer about health? Will they mention, mention an economic opportunity? Like, uh, 
it's, it's interesting. Just there's no real right answer, but it gives me a better insight into who they are. And so really like at seed stage, I mean, founder market fit is what we're, what we're sort of optimizing for. Um, and once we have that, we can put some gas in the tank and, and get some future capital efficiency because hopefully this frontier enterprise founders done it before and, and, and. Have you had a situation with like an early startup that let's say had some traction and had some customer momentum, but optically it looked great, but you know, those, those optics ended up being red herring, you know, like the the company wasn't able to kind of get to product market fit or hit escape Mm -hmm. velocity or, you know, really ramp venture even beyond that, that first initial year or so of success has has that ever been an experience you've been in yeah and, and and i wouldn't name a name but i'll i'll tell you kind of like a situation that i've seen play out um where say it's a frontier enterprise founder and like uh they're kind of famous in their, in their community and they have a bunch of vps that they're friendly with it there, there will almost be like an like a a false signal mm-hmm. because they like this vp of product at i don't know box or whatever We'll actually like, uh, we'll just champion it and own a little bit of budget and be like, hey, like I got a license from Box or then I got, I got a licensed customer from Salesforce. I got a licensed customer from Snap or whoever it is um, th- that that happens. And so there is a way to solve for that. Um, and the way to solve for that is introducing these types of founders to people that don't know them um, and, and like throw like throw like a a healthcare technology, a healthcare company or a hospital at them, throw like a, a real estate company or a financial services firm. And these fortune 500 execs, like they don't have time for anyone <laughs> and they'll give you the painful truth, uh, that you need early on as a founder. And so hopefully, hopefully introductions to that, um, to these types of teams early on will help them actually find product market fit because it's easy to get in this like Valley bubble, um, like of just, okay, like I sell to startups and I have high growth startups and these are all my customers, but you know, where, where, where is, where is a lot of GDP? A lot of GDP is outside of technology explicitly and it will become technology at some point, but, um, you gotta, you gotta start that early. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of the insular thinking thing we were talking about earlier. And, um, and also just the false signal and getting your buddies to give you budget. That's bad. It's great, great observations. Yeah. Farouk, what do you know you need to get better at? Raising capital, actually, I think is a real skill. Um, and it isn't always meritocratic. Uh, and what I, what I will say is it's sometimes hard to communicate uh, to, to, to LPs who are, important, who are important actors in the ecosystem, right? They, 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 they uh, arm us with the capital to take on risk. You know, why enterprise infrastructure is sexy it's a little hard sometimes to people uh, to, to articulate it, um, but you know I, I hope in the long term I get better at it. Um, but but what's what's nice and sort of the great the great uh, equilibrium, yes, DPI takes a long time, but um, being positive DPI uh, helps. So I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm I'll hopefully get better and better at it with results too. Very good. And uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and and follow along with Preface? Yeah. So, uh, man, I wish I was more of a Twitter person. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, uh, but I do, we do have Twitter accounts. Uh, so, uh, at preface ventures and at Farouk underscore bossy. Um, but honestly, please just email me, um, at Farouk, F-A-R-O-O-Q at preface Um, very happy to have a conversation and, and to help folks, uh, in any way I can. 
Awesome. Well, this is a lot of fun, Farouk. Uh, you know, I appreciate you making the time and, and talking through like a really compelling model. I mean, this is not one that we hear of uh, often or in this form on this show. And it's uh, it's one, I mean, you highlighted some great entrepreneurs, you know, Zoom and, and many others that uh, that struggled to raise, but certainly had the right mindset and the right product. So um, excited to watch, you know, how things evolve with Preface and see how, how uh, big that DPI can get. <laughs> Thanks. That's a, that's a good send off. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.